Welcome back to FinCast, the podcast series from the Financial Integrity Network. This is Juan Zarate. Welcome back. Uh, for this session, we're talking about U.S.-Mexico cooperation on anti-money laundering. And there are no better experts to talk about this than Danny Glazer and Jose Luis Stein, who are with me today, uh, members of the Finn family uh, and deep experts, not just on money laundering, but on where this relationship has been and, frankly, where it's going. Um, for our colleagues down in Mexico who may be listening, buenos dias, buenas tardes, buenas noches, whenever you're listening to this, uh, this is going to be a great half-hour podcast. Hope you enjoy it. What we're seeking to do uh, is talk about why the U.S.-Mexico bilateral relationship is so important in the context of money laundering uh, and financial integrity, what efforts have been done to date, maybe giving you some insights as to what's been happening behind the curtain and, frankly, why those ties have grown so strong in recent years, largely due to Danny and Jose Luis's great efforts. Uh, and what are the lessons learned? Uh, what has this brought? And what does this mean as the U.S. turns its attention not just to issues in Mexico, but also in Central America and Latin America writ large? So this is going to be a great session. We're happy you've joined us. Uh, and welcome back to FinCast. Let me introduce uh, Danny and Jose Luis. Guys, welcome. Hi, Juan. How's it going? Good, Danny. Good to see you. Hey, Juan. Guys, you, you look sharp, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Dressed up for radio. <laughs> Here we L- go. Likewise. Faces made for radio. Here we go. Um, Danny, can you talk to us about why uh, the U.S.-Mexico relationship for AML, sanctions, financial integrity, why that's been so important? Frankly, you as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury spent an enormous amount of time with that relationship, building the ties and driving the policy for the U.S. government. Uh, can you talk to us why that was so important? Well, Juan, over the past 20, 25 years, the U.S. and Mexican economies have become increasingly integrated, which has been uh, a, a great development for both the United States and Mexico and has caused a, a um, created a lot of wealth and created uh, a lot of positive economic developments both in the United States and Mexico as a result. Along with that economic integration has come financial integration. Uh, and the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the U.S. and Mexican financial systems um, uh, have been seamlessly integrated with uh, millions and millions of dollars flowing on a daily basis between the United States and, and Mexico uh, to support all the important trade and business that's been going on. Um, but as with uh, financial integration of any kind, uh, that could be used uh, uh, both uh, for good things, developing uh, developing the economy and promoting business and promoting prosperity, um, and for bad things as well. And it's uh, certainly no secret uh, that the narcotics cartels in the region uh, who sell their uh, sell their their product in the United States uh, need to get that money uh, back down to uh, uh, to to uh, to South America, and, and oftentimes that goes through Mexico. Uh, so uh, the financial integration that we've seen uh, to support uh, to support the economic integration, um, you know, has also given uh, uh, opportunities for narcotics cartels to take advantage of it. That's why it's so important uh, for the U.S. and Mexico to work together, and why we have worked together so uh, intensively uh, to make sure that we're doing everything we can uh, to, while we keep that financial superhighway open. Uh, to make sure that it's uh, policed and to make sure that it's transparent um, and to make sure that it provides minimal opportunities uh, for the narcotics cartels to uh, uh, to profit. Right. And lots in the news, obviously, about the power of those cartels, their ability to not only use the economy, to your point, but to uh, influence, to corrupt 
uh, to acquire arms and to be uh, incredible threats, not just to Mexican security, but to uh, U.S. security. And so that, that obviously has been a key part of the, of the calculus, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we're not going to win. And when I say we, I mean the United States and Mexico working together are not going to be able to uh, defeat uh, the drug cartels unless we take uh, a holistic approach to that. And that's got to include very strong law enforcement cooperation. Um, and it also has to include very strong financial cooperation. Um, the, again, and it's not just the U.S. and Mexican financial system, the global economy, uh, the global financial system is seamless. Um, and as a result of that, uh, which, which we all benefit from, uh, but as a result of that intense financial integration between the United States and Mexico and between the United States and the entire world, uh, there are opportunities uh, for multinational uh, crime organizations, transnational crime organizations, uh, to uh, uh, to move their money, and and we can't stop that um, unless we're taking an approach that includes law enforcement, that includes regulators, that includes policy um, experts at finance ministries, at foreign ministries, um, at homeland security ministries. Uh, we have to bring all of the tools that we have to bear um, uh, to attack this and to uh, uh, to try to put these guys out of business. Yeah, at a time when they're getting more and more sophisticated, we saw the King Midas case. The one of the chief money launderers for one of the one of the drug cartels in Mexico, uh, laundering you know billions of dollars over a course of, of many years using bank accounts, front companies, and to your point, Danny, uh, trade uh, not just with the U.S. but but uh, regionally and and even in Asia. Um, Jose Luis, let's turn to you. You've been in a in a privileged position. You were the attaché for the Mexican government here in Washington at a key point of of these uh, discussions as they were taking shape. You were a, a high-ranking Mexican official. You just left uh, the CMBV, which is the financial regulator for Mexico. Uh, you were also an IMF official. You, so you've seen this from various vantage points, but you've seen it from within the Mexican government. Can you talk to, to us about um, why this relationship is not only so important, but what you were trying to do with the bilateral dialogue? Sure, Juan. I think Danny has framed it very well in the sense that there was a consciousness between uh, or among both U.S. and Mexican authorities that this had to be addressed seriously in a holistic way, and that involved having uh, actors from several different agencies. In that regard, the dialogue uh, was crucial because it allowed, uh, through different working groups, to have a institutional infrastructure framework to commit uh, to a specific agenda in which each party had a series of deliverables. And it was also through this uh, intense work focused on anti-money laundering from different perspectives that the topic uh, began being much more important within the national security agendas of both countries. As Danny also mentioned, uh, the relationship between uh, both governments has, has has been taking place for many years, uh, especially in in security issues. And however, uh, the focus has has been mostly on enforcement, and that's great and needed, but it's definitely not the solution to dismantle uh, transnational organized crime. The best way for that goal is to go against the finances and the capacity to continue operating those organizations. If I could, can I, yeah, can I just add to that? Uh, because I think it's an important point. When you think about the way historically the United States um, has thought about terrorist financing and thought about how to attack a terrorist organization, whether it's Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Hezbollah, we've been so sophisticated. 
in our approach. We've been so sophisticated in the way we try to map out their financial networks and then use a wide variety of financial tools uh, to undermine those networks, to disrupt those networks, uh, to make it harder, costly, or less efficient for them to move their money. And in so doing, uh, to really try to, uh, uh, to, to break apart the, uh, the underlying structure of the organization. Um, uh, this is this is what the Treasury Department uh, has innovated over the past uh, 15 years, 17 years since 9/11. That we never really took that approach uh, with respect to the to the to the drug cartels, and it's uh, I, I think we can have an interesting discussion as, as, as to why. But it's always been uh, very much instead uh, a law enforcement driven effort, and the law enforcement aspect of this is so important. I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. It's extraordinarily important, but there's never been. Um, I think, well, until quite recently, there's never been, there had not been um, this attempt by the United States and, 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 and working uh, with Mexico to take a similar sort of approach to the drug cartels and to say, let's really try to understand how these networks work. And then look, let's look broadly at our toolbox, at our set of tools, um, and understand how we can attack that net, those networks, undermine those networks. And again, in so doing, uh, really attack the internal framework and structure of these of these uh, organizations. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I was at the White House when we launched the Merida Initiative, which was the the more aggressive bilateral cooperation between Mexico during the George W. Bush administration and the President Calderon administration in Mexico with an intent to intensify some of this. But let me challenge that a bit because I do think there was, at least in the 90s and early 2000s, an, appro an approach that looked a bit like what you've described in the context of Colombia and the Colombian cartels, the use of OFAC sanctions, the, the mapping of some of the business enterprises of, of the Cali cartel, for example, or the Medellin cartel. Um, that, that never translated into Mexico, even though we had talked about it. But what you're saying, Danny, is that in recent years, you've had much more of an emphasis on trying to apply that more sophisticated approach into the Mexican context. Look, what, what was done financially with respect to the, the Colombian cartels by, by OFAC was absolutely revolutionary. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned it, Juan, and, and, and I think it's a model that uh, uh, we've been partially guided by as we've worked um, with our friends and partners and colleagues in Mexico. That, that said, it, was, it, it still wasn't um, uh, an, an attempt to look at the sort of the broader global financial networks and to understand, um, you know, where this money was going, where it was coming from, uh, and, and how to sort of broadly push these cartels out of the financial system. It was very much focused on the financial activities of the Colombian cartels within, within Colombia and was extremely successful within that, within that scope. But what we're thinking about here is something even broader. And frankly, it was never even transported into the United States. Uh, again, the, 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 um, the, the emphasis in the United States uh, was, and, and in a lot of respects remains, law enforcement driven um, and when I say law enforcement driven, what I mean is criminal investigations um, into individuals within an organization, um, rather than saying, okay, let's let's not look at it, you know, ab initio person from a, person. from yeah. a from a from a criminal perspective. Let's let's map let's right. map out um, the global regional financial networks, um, and then. And then figure out like what what tools we could bring to bear to undermine to undermine those networks, and that's what the 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 public private partnership with Mexico started off as. It evolved, frankly, into something a little bit different. I know we're going to get to that, um, but that's what it started out as, with the idea saying, let's get U.S. officials, Mexican officials, U.S. banks, Mexican banks all together in the same room. Everybody's going to have a different 
sort of slice of this. Everybody's going to understand this a little bit differently. Everybody's going to have information to bring to bear um, and get everybody in the same room and start to understand what we're seeing. How, how is this actually working? And then work together, U.S., Mexico, public, private, um, to design uh, to design ways of, uh, of, of addressing it, of pushing this, this activity out of the financial system. Jose Luis, how are you seeing it? How is the Mexican government seeing it from your perspective? Because there's always been a lot of attention on the arms coming into Mexico from the U.S., the money that flows back, uh, concerns about the financial infrastructure of these groups that have been so devastating to Mexican security. Um, what shifted in your mind? And then what, what was happening in the period that you were involved to, to launch this bilateral dialogue that Danny just started to describe? Thanks, Juan. No, I, I think that as Danny was explaining, uh, there was a shift, uh, a very clear shift uh, in, in the focus uh, put into the anti-money laundering component. When I first started dealing with these issues around 2011, uh, the AML uh, CFT topics were barely in the security agenda. Today, it's perhaps the most important component and, uh, and the area where we're where there is a stronger relationship between agencies, not only on security, but between the ministries of finance of, of Mexico and the U.S. So that's that's one part. The other part is that the dialogue uh, matured uh, over the last years, and it, it also uh, be, became uh, more comprehensive and more inclusive. Danny was was mentioning one of the working groups that was created back in 2012. This is the bilateral public-private banking uh, meeting group, which incorporated for the first time, at least on the Mexican side, the participation of banking representatives in the discussions to better prevent and therefore combat uh, money laundering. And that allowed uh, different agencies, but also private sector, to have a better understanding of where the threats and vulnerabilities on, uh, on money laundering were and therefore take a series of decisions uh, that have been implemented successfully and, uh, and therefore making a better job in, 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 this, in this goal. And, and Jose Luis, from your perspective, what, were, what was the Mexican government trying to achieve? What, what, was your, what was the agenda? What were kind of your key talking points? What were you trying to push the U.S. side to do? G give the listeners a little bit of an insight as to, you know, what, were, what was Mexico trying to achieve? What were you trying to push? Great. I, I think the, the, the nice thing or the positive thing in this specific issue is that both countries are, are aiming towards the same goal, which is to fight on, a, on an effective way crime, organized crime mainly, and a, throughout the region. And by, by doing it in an effective way through going against their resources from illicit proceeds, and their infrastructure to continue laundering money and therefore operating uh, their criminal activities. So it, on, the, on, the, on the Mexican side, I, I think this was a, up to a certain point uh, circumstantial. We found that there was a, uh, a need to explore uh, other areas to combat crime. And we found uh, a very strong partnership on the U.S. side, which allowed that agenda to move on on the terms, e even in better terms than we would have expected. So it was both a desire to make a better job against crime, plus a, a response, a very positive response a, that we got from, from the U.S. authorities that allowed this path to take place. And I, th I think part of it, if, 
if I could speak for the Mexican government, as it was. <laughs> uh, it, it, sure. I think I think part of it uh, was when when the Peña Nieto administration came in, um, there was a desire by that administration to 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 quote unquote demilitarize. Uh, their war on the uh, on narcotics cartels and the drug cartels at the same time wanting to take st- strong firm action and wanting to undermine them but wanting looking for a change in approach um, at the same time uh, wanting uh, to uh, increase uh, uh, economic and financial integration with the United States all of that with all of that swirling it was sort of a perfect issue for them to come to to say let's focus on the financial component of the fight against the drug cartels. At the same time as Jose Luis, our thinking was evolving within the U.S. Treasury Department um, along the lines that I was talking about is how could we be more sophisticated? How could we uh, identify these networks and attack them in new and different and more uh, uh, sophisticated ways? And so it was a, a, a really uh, uh, just a sort of a fortuitous moment in time in some yeah, ways. Yeah, sounds like perfect where timing. The, uh, where, the, where, where the Mexican finance ministry and the U.S. Treasury Department um, sort of came to each other um, thinking of, think, starting to think about this um, in, the, in the same way. And it developed into um, really a, 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 a model of, of how two finance ministries could cooperate with each other um, on, on, on illicit finance. I know that uh, you know, my boss, my final boss at the Treasury Department, uh, Secretary Liu, always would point precisely uh, to the Treasury Department's cooperation uh, with, uh, with Mexico on these types of issues as a model um, that we should follow with, with many other countries and, in fact, did follow with many other countries. I, I want to turn to you both now and, and ask, because the listeners, I think, have a good sense of, of what you all were trying to do in terms of the bilateral dialogue. You may not have details as to how you know, the, that dialogue proceeded in terms of the various groups, but you had public and private uh, in, individuals and institutions involved. Um, but what were some examples of, of results from that work or those working groups that the listeners can um, sort of get their arms around? Jose Luis, from your perspective, what, what were some concrete things that uh, came out of this? Sure, Juan. Uh, I, I think that also added to, to the excitement of, of, the, of the working group and allowed it to evolve as it did. Uh, as we were working on... A, strategic and, and, and well-detailed action plan with clear deliverables for each uh, actor, uh, the tangible results started being reflected. Uh, and there were several, and I, I can mention a few uh, for, uh, as example. For example, the Mexican government decided to amend its regulation in order to allow for Mexican banks to share information on their clients and their clients' transactions with U.S. and other foreign banks that wish to carry out a more enhanced due diligence. This was key because most or many of the U.S. banks and other global banks were raising their anti-money laundering standards, and part of that included wanting to know more about the the level of of controls of the foreign banks in this case the mexican banks and however you, and you had embedded in that this de-risking problem right where mexican banks were at risk of losing their dollar access and their correspondent relationships without great, greater visibility right that was part of totally totally play. that was that was crucial for the, the risking and we can address uh, the risking in more detail uh, a bit ahead but uh, the, the fact that Mexican banks could not share information on their clients with US banks was causing that the the global banks were not feeling comfortable to carry on business with the Mexican banks and as you mentioned that led to the risking 
and and affected the the interconnection of the of the financial system. But this issue, this which was pretty easy to solve. I mean, it was an amendment to to regulation. It, it has its times. It, it has its processes. But it was a, a somewhat easy fix that had a, a very important consequence. So I don't believe that this issue would have been detected, at least not in, in the timely manner it was, without the participation of a bilateral public-private group. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. I think Jose Luis put his finger on, on one of the uh, more important accomplishments of the group. And just to uh, put a uh, just a foot stomp, uh, that particular point, as a direct result of this group, more information is flowing between U.S. and Mexican banks relating to money laundering than at any time in the past, and it would not have happened but for this group. This group uh, identified problems with information sharing, addressed those problems with information sharing, and as a result of that, we have more transparency, more greater ability for Mexican banks and for U.S. banks to protect themselves from money laundering than we had before. But beyond that, as a result of what grew out of this dialogue was uh, a decision recently by the Mexican Bankers Association to voluntarily comply with all U.S. sanctions uh, relating to uh, narcotics cartels. Uh, we've had uh, developments within uh, the Mexican uh, um, uh, anti-money laundering organizations uh, to develop their own sanctions tools and to actually begin implementing those sanctions tools. We've had real information, real uh, law enforcement intelligence um, exchange between Mexican um, and U.S. authorities as we try to work together to identify and undermine these uh, these networks. Uh, we've had a joint um, investigations uh, by U.S. and Mexican uh, finance ministry officials into money service businesses um, along the U.S. and Mexican Mexican border. Um, we've had uh, actual real cooperation coming out of this between U.S. and Mexican anti-money laundering officials relating to money that might flow from Mexico into the United States related, um, uh, uh, with, with respect to the real estate industry. Uh, we've had a huge range of, uh, of, of, ability, to, uh, of ability to work together looking at, uh, at issues like armored cars um, and the use of armored cars to transport um, uh, illicit proceeds, which is a, a bigger issue than people might, might, might realize. It's a huge issue. You know, and that's on top of all of that, again, is sitting on top of law enforcement cooperation between U.S. investigators like the DEA and, 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 the invest and, 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 and ICE um, and their counterparts on the Mexican side um, that, you know, and I, certainly the financial stuff doesn't, uh, doesn't take credit for this, but that builds on all that good cooperation that has resulted in arrests like Chapo and the extradition of Chapo, and this all sort of comes together. Um, to make it, uh, again, a much more hostile environment, a much more hostile financial environment uh, for these uh, drug cartels to be operating in. I don't want to sound uh, uh, like, a, I don't want to sound Pollyannish, there we go. as our friend David Offhauser, if you're listening, would say. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, it, uh, it, uh, it, it has been, we have made, made tremendous progress. A lot of work left to do, but we've made tremendous progress. And Jose Luis, I want to come back to you. It also sounds like a lot of this is confidence building within the financial sector itself around the information sharing, understanding where the risks may be and vulnerabilities. But Jose Luis, from your perspective, Danny gave us a huge menu there of, of accomplishments and things that were improved. What else from your perspective was important? 
Well, thanks, Juan. I, I, th I think that the examples that were provided by Dani are important because they reflect that the, the measures that were implemented were both on the Mexico and the U.S. side and both from private and public sector. So uh, th this, was a, this was a working group in which uh, between all we were identifying which measures had to be taken and whomever was better fit to do it would have to implement it. So we all took responsibility. Uh, of the examples that Danny mentioned, I would like to highlight two. One is the adoption by the Mexican Banking Association uh, of the OFAC list. So although in practice, most banks in, in Mexico were already running the OFAC list uh, since several years ago on their database whenever uh, establishing business relationships or in, in, in certain transactions, the, the fact that it is that it was not mandatory. And, and just for the listeners who may not know what OFAC is, that's the Office of Foreign Assets Control that runs and, and administers the sanctions programs for the U.S. government and puts out lists of designated parties with whom U.S. persons can't do business and for which uh, U.S. banks have to either block or reject transactions. What you're talking about is the Mexican government applying that U.S. list, that OFAC list, to their operations. The Mexican Bankers Association. Bankers Association. Yeah. Exactly. So, so this is a key tool for the U.S. and and for identifying uh, money launderers and their and their associates. And it's obviously then therefore also of the best interest of other jurisdictions, including Mexico, to 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 go against those uh, criminals. In, in, in the case of Mexico, the regulation due to the uh, Latin uh, or the civil uh, law, it was very difficult to modify the constitution in order to allow for banks to freeze the assets of these uh, criminals or potential criminals without a previous judicial uh, procedure. However, in, in terms of Mexican law, if the banks include within their AML-CFT uh, procedures manual, that they are gonna carry out X or Y activity, they become uh, mandated to do so immediately. In this case, the commitment was for all Mexican banks to uh, adopt the OFAC list and then the Mexican supervisor can verify compliance with that obligation and sanction uh, those cases in which uh, banks have not uh, complied with the OFAC list. Uh, during my time at the National Banking Commission, I, I identified some of these cases and uh, proceeded accordingly to, to, sanction, to sanction this institution. So the message is now being sent clearly also by the authority in the sense that this is a serious issue that should be taken seriously. Within the Mexican system, yeah, that's great. What else, Jose Luis? Another example, and, 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 and this is relevant because it's on the U.S. side now. FinCEN, which is the Financial Enforcement Network. Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. The, the, U, the U.S. FIU, the U.S. Financial Thanks Intelligence on. Unit. Also a regulator for those who may not so, know. So FinCEN, FinCEN has this other powerful tool, which are geographical targeting orders, through which it can request different sectors uh, or entities to provide information that is relevant for anti-money laundering investigations. In this regard, in discussions with the Mexican authorities, uh, Mexico highlighted the concern that many criminals uh, from, from Mexico, uh, many of them uh, related to drug trafficking, others to corruption, were, were purchasing uh, on a regular basis property in the U.S. Real estate. Real, real estate. real estate property. Real estate Farms, property. Farms, houses, chalets. <laughs> so the GTOs uh, that 
Thinson issued were directed towards obtaining information on the purchases that could be taking places place in 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 certain uh, cities in which it had been identified that that these Mexican criminals were 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 getting uh, real estate. This has also allowed for authorities on both sides to have a better picture and to take action accordingly. That, that's great. And I and FinCEN, to my understanding, has found this incredibly valuable. They've expanded what what are called GTOs in in short uh, from uh, certain sectors in in New York and Florida. They've expanded it in places in California uh, and Texas, and have found the information I think valuable. And so that's a great example. Um, let's. Let's move to a couple things before we close out the podcast. One is this issue of de-risking, which has been such a big topic and theme. The sense that uh, banks are so acutely sensitive to money laundering and sanctions risk that they're not willing to continue to allow correspondent relationships or dollar clearing relationships uh, with banks in places like Mexico or other high risk jurisdictions. And, and that has then caused uh, not only financial ruptures of those relationships, but also isolation of economies that, at the end of the day, we want to be included in the global economy. And so there's been a, a big debate uh, globally as to whether or not that's uh, that's been rational re-risking or that this has been uh, hypersensitivity to the money laundering risks, et cetera. But it's clearly been part of this bilateral dialogue and one of the concerns that the Mexican uh, regulators and Mexican banks have had. Um, can both of you just speak to the de-risking issue and how that was handled thematically and what you think the bilateral dialogue was able to do to contain what was at the time seen as a real crisis and is now seen as something that's quite manageable? Danny? Well, you, you said it was a concern uh, to, to, the, to the Mexican authorities. It was certainly a concern to the United States authorities um, as well. The United States is obviously Mexico's trading, largest trading partner. Mexico is a very, very large trading partner uh, for the United States and certainly indispensable in particular with respect to many of the states along the, south, along the southwest border and the southwestern portion of the United States. Uh, so any sort of indication, any indication uh, that there was a potential financial rupture between the United States and Mexico uh, was obviously treated with the greatest sense of urgency, both on the Mexican side and on the U.S. side. Uh, and it went to the very highest levels of government, uh, those, those, those concerns. Um, and we, the, our respective finance ministries, the U.S. Treasury Department and the Mexican Finance Ministry, were, uh, made it really one of the highest priorities of all the issues uh, that we were working on at our respective finance ministries was to work together to make sure uh, that this that this uh, didn't get that this didn't get out of control. Um, and as I said, as I alluded to before, I think we had a, a lot of success um, in doing that. that we, again, as you implied, uh, there's a whole, sort of a whole conversation that we could have about de-risking and the extent to which it it exists and the extent to which it's a good thing or a bad thing and 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 what an appropriate governmental reaction is as opposed to private sector reaction is to the phenomenon. But in any case, uh, the work, what we did was we already had, we were talking about the uh, U.S.-Mexican public-private partnership group that was at that time very much focused on identifying money laundering techniques uh, that the narcotics cartels were engaged in. Uh, but it was a great group, right, because you had financial authorities, law enforcement authorities on both sides and the, the, the banks themselves all in the same room, all at this point accustomed to talking to each other and establishing a rapport. And we assigned that group um, the, uh, the responsibility of, of identifying what was causing the de-risking and trying to at, at the very least stabilize it. The main thing that came out of that 
um, was what we talked about before, identifying obstacles to information exchange uh, between U.S. and Mexican banks. Um, and uh, the, in this case, the Mexican authorities taking action, uh, uh, legal and regulatory action, to eliminate those um, and then ensuring that the information was flowing. So in an, in an interesting sort of way, one of the um, positive, positive side effects of de-risking was it actually increased the transparency between the U.S. and Mexican financial system and actually increased, um, in the end, the amount um, and quality of information that was flowing between U.S. banks um, and Mexican banks. Um, that combined with uh, intensive work uh, that both sides did with their own bankers' association and both sides did with each other, um, I think that uh, we were able to, um, at the very least, um, uh, stabilize uh, the situation to the point where it, it um, by the time I left government, was not the, uh, the the you know the number one the number one issue between our our finance ministers. I'll, I'll I'll tell you a funny story. I was at a, a, a meeting, uh, uh, sort of late in um, the administration between uh, Secretary Liu um, and Secretary Vitagrai. Um and those uh, Secretary Vitagrai was the finance minister. Now, now, the, the, time. now, now the, the foreign, foreign minister. Now the foreign minister at the yeah. time he was the finance minister, and those meetings would always um, a lot of time was spent on de-risking at those meetings. Um, and the last one I attended, uh, Deerskin didn't even come up. And I remember as the meeting ended, Secretary Vitagrai looked over at me and he said, Danny, we haven't gotten to any of your issues. Um, and I said, Secretary Vitagrai, I think I'm going to take that as good news. I think that we're making progress here. That's that, success. That, yeah. That's success that we didn't, uh, we didn't have to talk about that's it at great. that level. Um, now, I do, I do want to say de-risking still exists um, uh, with respect to the United States and Mexico. Um, and again, I know this is a conversation that that will take us a long time and that goes beyond the scope of this particular podcast. But what I do think happen is, is happening is, as I say, the, the de-risking is getting pushed down the line. So you still have the financial relationships between the U.S. banks and the Mexican banks. Um, but but uh, the, the phenomena is then requiring the Mexican banks themselves to de-risk within their own financial system, um, which does uh, have the, uh, the, the effect of uh, putting uh, communities, um, uh, groups, communities, types of businesses, types of enterprises um, within Mexico in danger of, of falling out of the formal financial system, which is a problem. It's not a financial stability problem, which is what we were worried about, um, but it does become a financial inclusion problem, uh, subject for a different, different podcast. But uh, there, there are still very important issues that need to be addressed um, in this area. Jose Luis? Thanks, Juan. Yeah, totally agree with uh, Danny and, and just three three points. In, in the case of Mexico, we, we started experiencing the risking by the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. By 2015, more than 10 banks had been affected in more than 80 uh, correspondent banking accounts. So the risking was real. It, the good thing is that we had the institutional framework to address this issue. And and that was mainly the, the bilateral public-private banking meeting group. So before this issue started being discussed, much before in, in different interna international bodies, uh, as it is right now, uh, the U.S. and Mexico were already trying to understand which were the causes, effects, and most importantly, which were the solutions. The one main response to the solution is that countries have to invest in their AML, CFT measures if they wanted to change perception on being weak or risky in the matter. And Mexico took this very seriously, apart from many of the measures that have been mentioned that were agreed upon bilaterally, Mexico took unilateral decisions 
and and it strengthened uh, its its institutions and its work, including at the FIU, at the Banking Commission, and others. And in some other moment, I can also talk about the the work that was done more uh, specifically at the at the local level. Yeah, and Jose Luis, I know one of the things you drove uh, when you were at the CMBV, the banking regulator, was to build stronger ties with the American regulators to look at potential risks on the Mexican side as well as on the American side and where those risks could be uh, could be addressed and then build the confidence and transparency that was so important to deal with this issue. So totally, that that had two purposes. One, uh, to, to be more effective. If we had more information, different perspectives, we would do a better job. Two, uh, if we wanted uh, the the U- our U.S. counterparts to have a better perception of the of the work done by Mexican agencies, we had to show them the quality of the work we were carrying out and to make them feel comfortable that our level was similar or close to theirs. We're going to close out the podcast. I'm going to ask you both to to give us maybe some some high order kind of lessons learned and. What you th- where you th- see this going, this bilateral dialogue, and what the lessons learned are not just for U.S.-Mexico, but for um, other regional relationships, uh, the financial community writ large. We've already seen that uh, Secretary Mnuchin, the new Secretary of Treasury, Secretary Meade, the, the finance minister for, for Mexico, have continued a, a dialogue, and there seems to be a commitment between the finance ministries to continue what has I think, become a strength of the bilateral relationship and something that's very important uh, to maintain. And so I think I think we're going to see um, the fruits of, of the labor that you two put into this continue to, to bear out. Uh, but I want to hear from both of you. Where do you see this going and what are the lessons learned more broadly? Uh, Danny, why don't we start with you? Well, where this is going, I don't... You know, it's it's certainly uh, not a great insight to say that there remain very powerful, very large narcotics cartels out there that are um, very much integrated um, into the regional, uh, if not the global, well, and the global financial system. So uh, we have uh, we have a lot of work uh, left ahead to do. Uh, but what we know, and we know this from our experience working with the Mexican government on on these issues. And we know it from our experience, again, in the terrorist financing area, working with our friends and partners around the world in the, in the, in the Middle East and in other places. We know it from working uh, with uh, all our allies uh, in, in Europe uh, when, when we were going after uh, Iranian uh, uh, financial networks, working with our friends and partners uh, in, in Asia as we go after North Korean uh, financial networks. We know uh, that uh, that this is not something that the United States can do working alone because it is a it is a the, the financial system is fully integrated and it's regional and it's global. Uh, so what we know for sure is that uh, we could only solve this uh, problem. We could only make progress uh, in this problem um, in very close cooperation with the with our Mexican counterparts. The good news, as you said, Juan, um, is that the relationship um, is there. Uh, that the U.S. Treasury Department and the and the Mexican Finance Ministry have forged a very close relationship, and I'm very um, gratified, as you said, to see that the new administration um, uh, seems intent um, on uh, on not only maintaining that but building upon it and taking it uh, taking it to, to 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 even higher levels, which uh, which is. Uh, uh, shows, I think, tremendous uh, tremendous insight on their part. What 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 does that mean? That means more information. 
uh, sharing uh, between the United States and Mexico, uh, more joint investigations between the United States and Mexico, more um, uh, on both the criminal side and more on the financial side, more efforts to understand uh, the flow uh, the flow of money and how we have to tweak um, our respective systems, looking at what types of institutions. This isn't just about banks. Um, it's about um, casas de cambios and uh, centros cambiarios on the Mexican side, money service businesses um, on the U.S. side, um, other means of moving bulk cash, whether it's um, armored cars um, or, 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 uh, or other things. As you said, Juan, these are very, very sophisticated organizations. They're multi-billion dollar, multinational you know, corporations with very uh, high-priced financial advisors who work for them. So uh, they're smart and they're, they're sophisticated and they're dynamic and they're flexible. Um, and we have to be all of those things and even better. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and we have the ability to do it. Uh, but it's going to take a lot of work, and it's it's also understanding this is a long-term effort. That if uh, if we're only going to be satisfied with short-term sort of you know quick splashes, then uh, then then we're always going to be um, engaged in a sort of game of whack-a-mole or cat and mouse or whatever analogy you want to use. But uh, uh, if we think about this in terms of a sophisticated strategy to implement over the long term jointly between the United States and Mexico. Um, then I think we got a chance of really making a difference. Jose Luis, what, what are the lessons learned? What, what's, what are the next steps? You've thought more broadly uh, regionally. Uh, you, you're working now with Central American governments. Uh, what, what do you think? What's next? Well, I, I think the first is to recognize the importance of this issue. Politicians at the highest level have to have it clear, and, and also uh, the infrastructure for allowing uh, institutional uh, working groups to to. to to dialogue and understand the problems, to find solutions is, is key. So my suggestion would be that in the case of Mexico and the U.S., that the working groups continue to, to meet, continue to deliver. In the case of Central American nations, that they can find some examples in the case of the U.S. and Mexico of the path forward, such as allowing for a greater flow of information, strengthening institutions, adopting uh, OFAC and other designation lists such as their own, demanding more from the private sector. Uh, there has to be a comprehensive regulation and there has to be, most importantly, a, a strong uh, supervision on, on, on them and, and, and sanctions when applicable. That, that's great. Gentlemen, this is a great discussion. We could probably go for another hour. Uh, we'll probably come back to the issue uh, in, a, in a subsequent podcast to see where this is all headed between U.S. and Mexico. But what's clear is not only have you you've both been part of a, a seminal project bilaterally between U.S. and Mexico, but you've set in motion what is a process that builds trust, transparency, political will to deal with money laundering issues that affect both U.S. and Mexico and can only be addressed in a bilateral context if we're going to do it f effectively. Uh, and so, first of all, I want to thank you both for the work you've done. I want to thank you for spending time with the listeners, giving them some insights as to what this all means. Uh, and I want to say uh, muchas, muchas gracias, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thanks, Juan. Thanks, Juan. Listeners, thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed this latest round of FinCast. Until next time, this is Juan Zarate. Thank you.